As, as we celebrate Advent uh, this year, we look forward to uh, spending time in, as I said earlier, uh, recognizing, remembering, celebrating the first nativity, the coming of Jesus into this world, the, the time of celebration and, and uh, that we remember is, is important, but it's also a time of preparation, of getting ready uh, for not just Christmas around the tree and time with family, but being ready for the second coming of Christ. Um, that's what Advent is very much about. And today as we spend time in Isaiah chapter 64, uh, there, it's a reminder of that. You know, two years ago, a little over two years ago, Kim and I were preparing for a big trip that we had never thought we'd ever have the chance to be able to go on. We were headed uh, for a cruise around the Brit- in, in Europe, and we're getting ready anxiously uh, and, and expectantly for that trip. I had a friend um, that I went to college with, and you know how Facebook is, you find out about all these different things that you didn't know were going on in people's lives because they're away, and he was with his family in Europe two weeks before we were going to be, and, and while he was away, just as he began his trip, literally just as he began his trip, a fire sweep through his hometown where he lived. And he didn't know what was going to be left. When he returned, the town was wiped out and his home, nothing left. He knew while he was touring Europe that he had he, had, he received word they had nothing left. I mean, all the possessions, all the different things, but he had what was most important in that he had his family with him. And just now, two years later, he's finally entered into his rebuilt home and celebrated Thanksgiving with his family. But the process has been anything but easy. The process has been long. And many in our world can relate to so, something like that. I mean, when everything is lost, when, when homes are, or and lives are destroyed by war or natural disaster, uh, when, when it seems like there's no way out, we understand it and we've kind of labeled these situations a hopeless situation. And that's where our text lands us today in Isaiah chapter 64. Uh, it's right in the middle of what the, the returning Judeans believe to be a hopeless situation. After decades upon decades of living in exile, they've been in Babylon. Uh, the Judeans are now under the, the reign of the Persian king Cyrus, able to return to their homeland of Israel. They're, they're able to return to Jerusalem and, and these places, and expectantly they get there only to find it completely destroyed and barren. And what they thought would be this joyous celebration and homecoming has now ended in feelings of despair and loss. They've told the stories of this place to their children and to their grandchildren and, and only now return to a place that's unrecognizable from what they thought they knew. Let's put it this way. 
maybe this a better understanding. What happens for us when we remember the good old days? And we hope to return to them only to find that they really probably weren't as good as we remembered. Or at least when we return to them, they're not as we expect. And so in the Judeans' despair, they're feeling this incredible distance from God. They're, they're feeling the loss. They begin to question whether God is even on their side anymore. Is God working on their behalf? Is God even listening? We, we've heard the stories, but, but now we're not seeing it. And in the midst of this sorrow, in the midst of all this despair, they begin to raise up this, this great lament to God. And we see it in chapter 64. It, it says this, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. I mean, you could sense this longing for God to be revealed, this, this longing for Him to intervene, to, to interject some light into this darkness that they're feeling, to, to bring about some kind of hope in, of, into what they feel is a hopeless situation. And so because of what they feel to be this hopeless situation, they, they cry out and lament to God. And they wonder, where is God? Have, have they been abandoned? Have they been left to fend for themselves? And if so, why would God leave them here? I mean, we, in, in exile, in, in Babylon, we were doing okay, but why would he leave us here back to what we know as the promised land to be our homeland? Why would he leave us in what seems like such a hopeless situation in this way? And so they ask God to come back. The language is, is very vivid. Come down. Make your name known. And it points this reality that they long for this great invisible interaction with God. And so like a child trying to coax their parents to do something, they begin to offer up things of remembrance. And they remind God of all the ways that He's interceded in the past. And they wonder where, you know, God, where are you this time? You know, you did all this. And so they remind them, you know, because over their lives, they've heard of the miraculous stories. And so they're reminding God, hey, remember that whole thing with Abraham and Moses? Hey, God, do you, do you remember how you established us and your nation in Israel in the, as, as the promised land? Do you, God, do you, do you remember how you freed us? from Egypt and brought us into this land? How, how you led us through the Red Sea when it seemed hopeless that time? Do, do you remember God? We need you to come to, to rend the heavens, to, to declare your name. And so they begin to petition God to draw close. They, they begin to petition God to reveal himself. To reveal his power. And so this lament shifts into a time of confession. Because the reality of the story is that they have continued 
to sin. They've continued to go against God and what he's given them instructions. And, and the reality is that no one really calls on the Lord's name anymore. Unless they're wanting something. There's this real honesty happening here. And they believe that their sin has caused God not just to kind of close his eyes, but to turn himself totally away from him. It, it, they, they view their righteous acts now in light of, of the sin that, that has turned God away. They, they view these righteous acts, these good things now as filthy rags. And we tend to soften this phrase. We tend to, it, good, good company, you know, polite company wouldn't say such things. But, but the reality is that the phrase they use here is, is that we're not just dirty rags. We are like minstrel rags. Unclean. Not fit to touch. That our, that our lives are reflective of that. Because they have forsaken God. And so there becomes this time of communal confession. Many of these individuals weren't even born when the nation of Israel entered into this exile. And so this confession isn't about individual acts as much as it is about who they are and how historically they have been as a community of people. It's about corporate sin. The ways that they as a society, as a people, have forsaken God, have, have turned to their, themselves in ways they have been disobedient to whom God has called them to be. You see, God hasn't just called them just to live however they want. No, God has called them to be a hospitable people who love God and love their neighbors. They were intended and, and supposed to be a blessing to the world around them, to be a reflective presence of God who put them in the promised land, in this, this key area of the world. Instead, they have repeatedly lived in opposition to the people that they were called to be. And we see this idea of recognition of their collective sin as they, as they confess. In verse 5, they say, we continued to sin. In verse 6, all of us. Verse 7, no one. And now there begins this shift in their thinking, you can see, as it begins to show itself. God isn't to blame for their present circumstances. Instead, now they realize that they have a responsibility to own their situation that has got them there in the first place. And so even in the midst of their desperation, they're learning to trust God and trust God that, that is, He's listening to them. And the reason for this transition is that confession and lament, they go together. They go hand in hand. In, in that the lament is this crying out in, about circumstances. It's, it's a recognition of where we are. But that confession is both a plea for forgiveness and also for a restoration in a relationship. And in both of these, there, there's this longing for, 
for restoration and renewal. So, so the people have reached this point where there's really nothing left to say. And in between verse 7 and verse 8, there's, there's this gap that we see. And yet, and yet, it seems that they have expressed so much despair that they have nothing left to say and all that's left is complete and utter hopelessness. And yet, there's this glimmer of hope that begins to appear as we read this passage. In verse 8, the entire tone of the text changes. In verse 8, it's, it's like a switch has been flipped. Now and just instead of God, come down, make yourself known, all this stuff, and, and after the understanding of they, they have wronged, they have done the things wrong, all of a sudden, it, it is God the Father and God the potter. The people are now the clay. The people are now the work of your hand. There's this understanding that their circumstances haven't changed, but yet they look, as they are still looking at this desolate place they call home, and they still are facing insurmountable odds, but what has seemed to shift is their view of relationship with God. In the midst of a hopeless understanding, it's an understanding of who God is. Now there is hope, not because of the good that they've all of a sudden started doing. Their, their confession shows that they've continued to lack good and right actions. There's hope, not because the circumstances have changed. The walls are still broken down. Their homes are still in complete desolate repair. It, it, everything still remains in ruin. There's no triumphal homecoming now all of a sudden. They still have nowhere to live. And yet, there is hope because of who God is. God is is their father. There's this relationship there and they express their confidence in a God who loves them in spite of their failings. God is their potter. He's at work molding them. There's this actively moving in, in a way and shaping them to look and represent who God is. And as a result, they are God's people. So after this lament and confession, the people are remembering their identity. They remember who they are. And regardless of whether or not they have a home, they remain the people of God. It, it, it very much calls into the New Testament the story that Jesus shared of, of the... Of the uh, the child that comes back that had gone, the prodigal son, who had left who, everything he, he, he was, went off, wasted it, and in hope returned home. Not expecting to be the child, but finding when they met the father, their status as son hadn't changed that God still loved them, just as the Father still loved that Son. And as for us, well, 
even in the midst of hope, seemingly hopeless situations, in this year of 2020 that seems to have taken five years so far, we still have hope. There's hope for us. On this first Sunday of Advent, many are walking through what seems to be a hopeless situation in our world. Maybe we're looking at, we were looking at, at spending time with family and there's this deep apprehension for whatever reason. You know, we long for this, this Hallmark Channel idea of a perfect family situation where, you know, we're singing all the songs and we're doing all the things and the tinsel's perfect and the kids, you know, just neatly sitting around the tree behaving themselves and and the cat isn't climbing into the tree, you know, biting on the wires and starting fires and all the different things that, that the, this thought process brings. And yet maybe some are facing families that are bound by addiction. Maybe some are facing unhealthy relationships or unspoken pain. Some walk into this holiday season knowing that they won't have a loved one with them. And so what is supposed to be idealistically this joyous occasion has become one of distress and heartache. Others were looking forward to a great year only to be facing financial issues or illness and now we wonder how are we going to get through it and in the midst of all that it's understandable that at times God can feel distant in the midst of this hopeless situations and despair has a way of robbing us of the joy that God intends for us to have we wonder, where is God in the midst of the pain? And so we look longingly at where God was, and we experienced God in the past, and we ask God, where are you? Are, are you still close at hand? And let me remind you, in the midst of that, the lament and confession are a very important part of understanding Advent. Not all of our hopeless situations are caused by our own choices. That, that sin still is participating in this world. Sometimes our situations are caused by others and their sin and their choices. And yet we know that there are places we need to confess. Sometimes not just individually but collectively as, as, a, as a people. We've participated in a collective action that has wronged others. And, and other times there's a need to confess our attitudes or thoughts in response to others. But confession often will lead us to look at things with new eyes. That we begin to see and better understand things. And so through our lament and our confession, in the midst of this desperation, we need to remember who God is. We are pointed to that. And we need to remember who we are in light of who God is. 
Our circumstances this Advent season may not change. But all those hopeless situations that we could be facing, you know, even as Christmas approaches, we're still to remember that God is still our Father. And He is still the potter. And God still desires relationship with us. And God, in spite of what we've done, and despite our circumstances, God still desires to make us holy. Because He is holy. In spite of all the things that we, we've done, and despite our circumstances, and God still wants us to remember that we are still His people. We've not been forsaken by God. And as God's beloved people, we still have hope that God is going to do a new thing as He announces Himself. So from the perspective of this text this morning in Isaiah, there's this hope for, for the world, and it's still a long time off. And we have the honor because of time, of seeing more deeply into the story. Of knowing how that particular part ends. And yet, we're still waiting. We're still waiting for for the new Jerusalem. We're still waiting for the second coming. And while we may know how it turns out for the Judeans, it doesn't mean that we don't face our own hopeless situations today. Because we know, or we don't know how our own stories are going to wind up. We don't know how they're going to end, and so we may have years ahead of us of questioning, you know, at times, where are you, God? We may question, well, who are we as a people at times? Henry Longfellow wrote a great Christmas poem once, and he said, And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And we can sense this. We can intensely feel that in the despair of our text today, And we can feel it even in our own lives as well. And yet, and yet, there is hope. Let me say it again. There is hope. Not because everything's going to work out the way we think it should. There is hope. Not because everything's going to be wrapped up by Christmas morning in a nice, neat, beautiful red bow. There is hope because God still hears our cry. And just like God heard the cry of the, of the people of Judah hundreds and thousands of years ago, there is hope because God is a God, good Father who desires relationship with us, who loves us unconditionally. There is hope because we are still God's people as He continues to mold us to better reflect who He is. And there is hope because one day there will be a second coming. 
And that as we adhere our lives to to who He is, as we become more and more obedient as a people, as, as as children of God, we understand that on that day, He will reclaim His people. And there will be a joyous proclamation of peace on earth and goodwill to men. So even today, weeks before Christmas, when we will celebrate the light of the coming of the world, when the earth will rejoice over the birth of Christ, it's in the midst of our despair today that we can cling to hope because of not because of who we are, but because of who God is. And as we've been saying over and over and over this year, God is still worthy of all the praise. God is still worthy of everything that we can bring to Him. God is still worthy and more than capable of anything that we bring to Him today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, there is hope. Not because we are good. Not because we are worthy. There is hope because of who you are. That you are holy, perfect, without blemish. That you are the creator. You are God and we are not. And even in the midst of of times of despair, Lord, even in the midst of times where we wonder just what's going on, Why? That God, we can continue to bring these things to you. That we can continue to exalt your name. For you are God. And there is hope in that. There is hope and an understanding of the second coming that you will come again and redeem all creation unto yourself. And we give you thanks for that. As we go about our week this week, in all the uncertainty of our world, Lord, may we be bearers of your hope. May we be lights, not of ourself, but reflective of you to those that we encounter. And these things we give to you all the praise. In your name we pray. Amen. Have a great week. You are dismissed.